the joy we have is real. Because the Savior we know is real. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. Some folks would say it this way, the uh, places I used to go, I don't go no more. The things I used to say, I don't say no more. He'll make you a new person. And it's a process, but you know that you've been changed. I believe the anointed Pace sisters used to sing a song back in the day talking about, I know I've been changed. Religion can't change. Church can't change. But Jesus can change. And uh, today represents the 12th anniversary, today, the very day, the 12th anniversary that my oldest brother, Harold, came to Nashville to live with us. So today is 12 years. And before that, the Lord had delivered him from drug abuse. And Harold, how long have you been clean and free now? 14 years. 14 years. You can do it. We thought my brother and I were worth saving. Yeah. So we're not only related by the blood of Harold and Betty, but we're related above all by the blood of Jesus. And uh, he'll change you. He'll change you. He'll change you. And um, I want to invite the church to go or encourage you to go see a couple of movies that are out right now. One is called The Shack. And the other is called I Am Not Your Negro. And I have not seen I Am Not Your Negro yet, but I'm told that it's good. And concerning a church like ours that has an intentional mission to experience, explain, and expand God's diverse kingdom in the city and throughout the world is something I would highly recommend, um, just as we can continue to learn together um, so that we can impact the world and not just impact the church. But then uh, The Shack is a book a movie that was made from a book written by Paul Young, a book that I read many years ago, and I had the privilege, my wife and I, of going to a pre-screening of it. And it's controversial in the fact that it does not paint God in the traditional way. But here's the thing. I don't know if God can be painted in a traditional way. Um, and so the way they, they communicated, and when you see it visually on the screen, I believe it will help many of us who struggle with the fatherhood of God. Many of us struggle with that because of our own earthly fathers. But I believe this movie can help you with that. But also it will help you with if you're dealing with some kind of insurmountable pain whereby you wonder, why has God allowed this to happen to me? And you don't feel like you can recover from that pain. That movie, once again, is a great image for you because within the movie, 
um, the, the main character is taken back to his place of greatest pain that he may be healed from it. And so that's how our God is. Uh, many times he'll take us back to that place so that he can show us that his grace is greater than the pain that was inflicted on us. So if you get a chance, um, I would encourage you to go see one or both of those movies. Uh, this coming Wednesday, my wife and I have the privilege of joining um, a church down the street. Uh, Bethel World Outreach has invited us for their building dedication on Wednesday. And so my wife and I will go and uh, represent Strong Tower and encourage them in the work that God has called for them. So we won't be able to be at huddle groups this week. Um, and so if you come this week, there will be food again at 6 o'clock, and then huddle groups will begin at 645. Those are our small groups, so any and all are welcome to attend. Uh, and so uh, pray for us as we go and encourage that body. And then on Saturday, I believe, we have a membership class at 9 o'clock, and it will be here at the church. So if you have questions about this body, you're thinking about joining, you know for sure you want to join, you want to be in that class. If you can't come for all of it, come for, all, come for some of it from 9 to 12. Um, you need the church, and the church needs you. It's time to make it official to sign your name on the dotted line. If not here, somewhere, you need to be officially, officially connected in a local church. So come on out Saturday that you may inquire and learn a little bit more about who we are. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over to the book of Titus chapter 1. At the conclusion of the service today, uh, we're going to do something that's very, very, very important. And this sermon today is going to set that up. What we're doing today um, is causing yet another shift in heavenly places. Um, we are in a war. The good news is that the war has already been won because Jesus has overcome. So as Christians, we're not fighting for the victory. We already have it. So we're fighting technically from a place of already being victorious. And so today there's a shift in the atmosphere spiritually because God is going to ordain three more leaders to be a part of Strong Tower Bible Church. And so at the end of service today, we're going to lay hands on uh, Bob Van Fletteren, Joseph Ozine, and Jerry Lewis and commission them to the work that God has called them to do here in the church. And then uh, we'll have a reception in the fellowship hall right after the prayer time. So um, praise God. Again, this is monumental. This is what the Lord does. He provides what we need, and above all, he provides who we need. So Titus chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 5. And the Bible says, for this reason, Paul said, I left you in Crete. Has anyone ever left you somewhere before? Paul left this brother in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, 
holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So give me a moment to talk to you on the subject today of a few more good men. A few more good men. Let's pray. Dad, thank you that you chose us. When we could not and would not have chosen you, you chose us. You came to us when we could not and would not have come to you for you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that not only are we saved by faith, but the just are to live by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, increase our faith today that we might increase our activity, that we might not only hear, but we might do. Thank you for what you're doing in this church, for how faithful you are to provide. Your word tells us that if you did not spare your only son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him freely be given everything we need? You're a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And we pray asking for help during this preaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Titus tells us what it means to have a good church. Just three chapters in this book, but in those chapters, we find out what it means to have a good church. So if you're not a part of this church, you're visiting from another church, uh, use this criteria to see whether or not you're part of a good church. And I'm going to ask our people to do the same if you're a part of this church. Uh, look at these uh, three things that we see in the book of Titus. Number one, a good church is going to have good leaders. And that's in chapter one. A good church is also going to have good or sound doctrine. That's in chapter two. And then a good church is going to have good works. That's in chapter three. So a good church is going to have good leaders, good teaching or good doctrine, and good works. And Paul wanted to see the church at Crete be all that God wanted it to be, and that is to be a good church. You see, the church at Crete had some things that were lacking, and they had some things that needed to be set in order. Look at verse 5 with me again. Paul says, for this reason, I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So before we go any further, let's ask ourselves the question. What were the things that were lacking in the church, and what were the things that needed to be set in order? Well, we don't know for sure what the things were that were lacking and the things that needed to be set in order. But this we do know for sure, and that is every church has things that are lacking, and every church has things that need to be set in order. Amen? <laughs> Even this church and the great church you come from has things that are lacking and the things that need to be set in order because the church is full of fallen, fallible people. And so we don't know for sure what those things were. And if you're looking for the perfect church, 
Stop looking. It does not exist. Every church Paul wrote to had issues of some kind. So if he wrote the strong tower, he would put our stuff on blast to the church in Nashville on the borderline in Brentwood, I, Paul, write. Mm. And some churches had issues of doctrine that needed to be cleaned up. And Paul would write in his letters and he would give them what sound theology is supposed to be like. Other churches would have relational issues in them where people weren't getting along well and they were divided and cliquish. Uh, other churches were dealing with intense persecution and the government was coming against the believers and there was a lot of resistance and so Paul would write to the church to let them know. Or uh, some churches were dealing with financial issues. So whether it was doctrinal, relational, or harmful things, or, or financial things, every church has something to set in order. Every church has something that is lacking somewhere where grace must be applied. In Crete, there were a few things going on. When this church got established there, and some believe that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were visitors in Jerusalem from the island of Crete. So that when they heard the gospel expounded from the lips of Peter and people got saved, they went back home. And so there were people who went back to the island of Crete with the good news of Jesus. And so churches and believers were established there. Sometime after Paul's first Roman imprisonment, he and Titus went to Crete. And while they were there uh, evangelizing, making disciples, and planting churches, Paul had to leave and go elsewhere, but he left Titus there on assignment, and he writes to Titus this letter. But as you read the letter, you see that there are some issues that they were dealing with there. Well, on the far right, you had Jewish people. Some of them may have even been Jewish believers who felt the importance to stress the Mosaic law, circumcision, and keeping the law, and all of those kinds of things. And Paul, we know, had to deal with this in the book of Philippians. So you can always join us on Wednesdays, Wednesdays as we study Philippians. And so those people were called Judaizers. They were Christians who trusted in Christ, but they still couldn't let go of Moses. And so they, they, they struggled with what we would call legalism. And then you had to the far left, you had the Cretans. Uh, these were the Gentiles who lived on the island of Crete, and these were people who were emissaries and pirates and all kinds of wild and loose people that were on that island. And so they had this reputation, and Paul talks about this in chapter 1, verse 12. He said, where one of their own, a prophet, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So that's what, and then he said, and this testimony is true. In other words, that folk crazy in Crete. So you had the folk on the right and the folk on the left, and you had the church in the middle. And the church was being impacted and influenced by both sides because many of them came from out of, whether it is strong legalism or just crazy worldliness, they were now new believers in Christ and they needed to grow. And so Paul had to send this letter and he told Titus to get that church to get those believers in order. And Paul's remedy for the church's ineptness was for Titus to appoint elders. That is, to appoint a few good men. 
And he said, I want you to appoint them in every city. Because the church was all over the island of Crete in various regions and cities. It was one church with a lot of different locations. And that's really how it is today. There's really only one church, one body with a lot of different locations in Africa, Australia, Europe, right here in America, different denominations, but one church if we believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. That is what makes us the church, the body of Christ. And so the call was for Titus to enlist a few good men because if you can get a few good men, you can change the island. If you can get a few good men, the church will stand up to be what God has called it to be because everything rises or falls on leadership. Paul said we need a few good men, and it reminds me of a story of a little boy who was doing his homework. His father was home, the mother was not there, and the father was not used to helping the son with his homework. And so the father was in the front room trying to watch ESPN. And the little boy was in his room trying to do his homework. So when he had a question about his math, he would come out to the front room and say, Dad, would you help me with my math? The father would get upset because he was being interrupted from watching his television show, but he would try to help his son with the math and even say, that ain't the same math they taught me when I was growing up. What kind of math is this? Help the boy and sent him back into the room. Ten minutes later, the boy comes out of the room saying, Dad, would you help me with my English homework. And so the father, is in, he's interrupted again from watching ESPN. He says, okay, son, I'll help you with your English homework. Sends him back into the room again. Then the boy comes back out and says, dad, would you help me with my science homework? The father is perturbed. Okay, I'll help you with your science homework, but let's make this quick. I got to watch LeBron. Come on, let's make this quick. Sends the boy back into the room. He finally thinks it's over, but then the boy comes out one more time and he says, dad, would you help me with my geography homework? And he said, geography homework, what's the assignment? And the boy showed him a picture of this world, of the world and how the continents go together. And so the boy needed to know which continent was Asia, which continent was Africa. And so the father, he, he said, I, I don't have time for this. I tell you what, and he grabbed the homework and he ripped it up into pieces. And he said, and when you put this page back together again, then I'll help you with your homework. Sent him back into the room with all the little pieces of paper, and he thought, I got at least an hour because he doesn't know how the world fits together. I can watch my game. Well, five minutes later, the boy comes back into the room, and the picture is taped together perfectly. And he hands it to the father, and the father says, how in the world did you do this? I thought that you didn't know how the world fits together. How did you know where to put Africa and where to put Asia and where to put North America and South America? How did you know all of that? I ripped this thing up to pieces. Little boy looked back at his father and said, Dad, you're right. I didn't know how the world went together. But on the back side of that page I handed you was the picture of a man. And I know how men go together, so I just started putting the men together, the man together on the back of the page so that when the man got together, I flipped it over and the world was together. So if we want to see the world come together, we got to see some men come together. We just need a few good men that God will put his hands on. And not that God doesn't use the sisters. So don't throw any shoes at me today if I don't focus on the sisters, okay? I'll focus on the sisters another time. 
But today I'm talking about the men, a few good men. Because leadership was to be the solution for addressing and solving problems in the church and in the community. Let me tell you what a leader is. A leader is an individual who influences a group of individuals to achieve a common goal. That's what a leader is. A leader is an individual who influences a group of individuals to achieve a common goal. However, it's not enough for a leader to be a leader because the best leaders need to be servant leaders as well as strategic leaders. Oh, hold on, I'm gonna give you something rich. Servant leaders are men and women who lead from the rear. They lead from behind. They are people who lead by example, servant leaders. Servant leaders lead by empowering other people. Servant leaders like to see themselves work out of a job. That's how serious they are about empowering other people. Servant leaders lead by promoting other people, even over themselves. And when someone that they have poured into begins to blossom and shine, that's when the servant leader steps further and further back into the darkness behind the drapes so that that person can shine. That is what servant leadership is. And that's why John the Baptist was called the greatest leader of all, because he was a servant leader. And he would say over and over again, it is not about me. I know God is using me. I know y'all are coming out to hear me. I know y'all are looking at me as I don't cut my hair and I got on this camel short set out here in the desert. I know y'all are checking me out, but it's not about me because the one who is coming behind me is before me. And I must decrease and he must increase. And I will lay my life down because once Christ came and he baptized Jesus in the Jordan John's ministry was technically over, and it was time for him to step back, and he did. But Jesus was the ultimate servant leader. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But not only that, he showed that he was the embodiment of servanthood when he washed the feet of the disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but they walked around with open-toe sandals. And the dust and the dirt and the sand would cake up in between the toes. I think you get the picture that I'm trying to communicate to you. And it was hot and them feet were sweating, but Jesus still washed their stinky, nasty, desert, dirty, funky feet. And he said, I left an example for y'all to do the same. And it wasn't so much just the act of foot washing, it was calling to the message of being a servant. Because the servant, as he's called in the Old Testament, my servant would lay his life down. It's one thing to lay aside your clothes and wash feet, but he laid aside his life, laid down his life. And greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for sinful people. So servant leaders, oh, those are the best leaders. But not only that, we need some strategic leaders as well. Paul is saying the way that we remedy the problems that are in the church and in the community is we need some leaders, but not only leaders, servant leaders, but strategic leaders. Strategic leaders see what others typically do not see. They have a vision that is coupled with a plan. They just don't dream stuff. 
They dream stuff and try to figure out how to do stuff as well. Strategic leadership is the applied skill of, number one, assessing where a people or an organization is. So the first thing you got to do is, where are we? Uh, uh, and we have to be honest and face the brutal facts if we're not doing well. Because if we stay in denial, denial will make us delusional. But a strategic leader says, we're suffering around here. There are some things that are not coming together with us as a people or with our organization. So we are going to take a true assessment of where we are. No rose-colored glasses. But then secondly, a strategic leader will determine where the people or the organization need to go. This is where we're going to go, and they have great foresight in how to lead people in that direction. But then they will consider the resources it takes to get there. They just won't start walking. No, they're going to consider uh, objectively and reasonably what it will take, what it will cost to get from A to B. Now, that, that doesn't mean that they don't have faith, but they have a faith that is also objective and measurable because God gives us common sense as well, as well as for us to have faith. But then fourthly, they will make the journey. They just won't talk about going. They just won't say we need to do this. They will actually make the journey. And strategic leaders are men and women who know how to motivate other people to action. In other words, they have a level of charisma about them whereby people can hear them and want to follow them. If you call yourself a leader and nobody's following you, you know what you're doing. You're just taking a walk. But a strategic leader will make the journey, whether they lead from the front or lead from behind. And one of the greatest examples of a strategic leader is Nehemiah, who said, y'all see the trouble that we're in, don't you? Our walls are down. The enemy is coming. We're a laughing stock. Come, let us rise up and build. And the people got behind Nehemiah. After waiting all of those years coming out of Babylonian captivity, they were stalled until God sent a leader there, a good man. And then what you do is once you make the journey, you start measuring progress along the way. Because you might need to make a necessary adjustment or change. You just don't be stubborn and say, this is what it is on paper. This is what we said it's going to be. And you're not flexible. No, a good leader is going to make adjustments like that dude that I do not like from New England called Bill Belichick. How in the world do you come back from 28 to 3 in the Super Bowl? That dude made some adjustments at halftime. He's a good leader with his ripped up sweatshirt and everything. Stealing plays from the other team. But anyway, you arrive. Finally, at the desired goal. So after you assess where we are. You determine where we need to go. You consider the resources it takes to get there. You make the journey. You measure progress. You arrive at the goal. And when you arrive at the goal, you go get cool in the gang because now it's time to have a celebration. You got to celebrate your goals. And that's what we see from strategic leaders. So when a local church or any organization has leaders who are servant leaders and strategic leaders, Great things can happen. Well, quickly, notice two things from the text. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint who? Elders in every city. Notice the plurality of elders right there. Plurality. Elders. Plural. 
Leaders lead best in collaborative efforts. The church is a monarchy only to the degree that Jesus is the king of all kings and lord of all lords. He is the one who dictates to the church what the church should do, and his dictations are found in the word of God. It's his word, it's his word, it's his word. He is the king, he is the head of the church, and we are the body. No matter what titles we may set in front of our name, and I may hit a few of them in a minute when we get to verse 7, we are not the head of the church. We are to lead in a collaborative effort. Jesus is the head. We are not, which is why there is safety in a multitude of counsel because absolute power corrupts absolutely. So any church organization where someone is in leadership and they can't be checked, you're in trouble. So this is why Titus said, or Paul told Titus, appoint elders. And when you read the New Testament, you see that's really the pattern that when they would get together, it would be the apostles and the elders, the elders. And so we see here that there is a call for plurality of leadership in the church. But then in verse 7, Paul says, after he's going to talk about an elder and what qualifies a man to be an elder, he's then going to say in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. So the first thing we see is that there's this call for the plurality of elders. But then Paul called these leaders, not only did he call them elders in verse 5, but he also called them bishops in verse 7. Now, in today's church world, the word bishop is almost up there with pope. I can't even find Pope in the Bible. That's a whole other thing. Don't want to be disrespectful to our Catholic friends. But bishop, you know, a dude is a bishop <laughs> when he oversees a bunch of churches. Okay, okay. But technically, the words bishop and elder are used interchangeably in Scripture. So, and we can throw a third one in there called pastor. Elders, bishops, pastors are different terms for the one man in the one office, and they can be used interchangeably. Bishop is not some special up there close to the Trinity kind of a thing, and because you wear a robe and a chain that goes over into your pocket, that you are a bishop. Now, if you want to be called bishop, be called bishop. You want to be called pastor, be called pastor. You want to be called elder, be called elder. But let's look at what the Bible says. Look over at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Because I get around some of these brothers, Randall, and uh, they act like their stuff don't stink. Oh, man. Look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. Paul said, or what's said of them, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for who? The elders of the church. The church of Ephesus had elders. So Paul called for them. And then look at verse 28. Once they all get together, Paul begins to encourage these guys because he's about to leave the city of Ephesus. And he says in verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word episkopos or bishop. And he's also made you to shepherd, which is where we get pastor from, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. 
I was watching some old Run DMC the other day, and Run likes to get out on the stage and say, whose house? And everybody say, Run's house. Whose house? Run's house. Well, if we talk about the church, whose house? Christ's house. Whose house? Christ's house. And so we are just servants in the Lord's house, in his church. And the leaders, servant leaders, strategic leaders, can be called elders, overseers, or shepherds. He's talking to the same group using three different terms. And we see Paul does the same thing in Titus chapter 1. He says, appoint elders, and then he goes on to say, for if a bishop. So I just wanted to say that because some of y'all got some cousins who are bishops. And you just might need to have a little artillery when you're talking to them. Now, to differentiate between lay elders and paid elders, because some elders make their living at this, 1 Timothy 5, okay? Some of us make our living at preaching and teaching. Others do not. And so at Strong Tower, to differentiate between lay elders and paid elders, we typically call the laymen simply elders, and the paid elders we call pastors, Okay, but a pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, a pastor is a bishop, a bishop is an elder. They're, they're interchangeable, but to help in our government, we call the laymen typically elders. But last week while I was preaching, I called Clifton pastor, you know, because he is a pastor. Gary is a bishop. Matter of fact, I think I want y'all to start calling me Bishop Chris Williamson. <laughs> Hello, Bishop. Mm, well, praise the Lord, everybody. God bless you. Because when you're a bishop, your voice got to get a little deeper, you know. Oh, thank you. But I told the elders, I told them yesterday, I said, guys, I want to thank you for your commitment in this church. You guys serve so much. You do so much. Your wives give so much. And, and, and you guys, uh, I, I said to them, I said, uh, I'm paid to be good. But you guys are good for nothing. I mean, y'all just come up in here. You do it because you love Jesus. I love Jesus and I love getting paid. Thank you, Lord. Well, let me move quickly. Elders, bishops, pastors are men who are blameless, according to verse 6 and again verse 7. Um, that is, men are to be of unquestioned integrity. The Greek word means to not be accused or called in to be above reproach, to not be handled so as to be brought down. In other words, somebody can't put a handle on something in your life with how you handle your finances and bring you down. Or how you talk to your wife. You, they heard you cussing at her in, in the grocery store and they want to bring down your whole testimony because an elder or a leader is only as good as our testimony. And so, so this word means to be above reproach you can't be pulled down. Elders are not to be appointed because they are popular. They're not to be appointed because they're wealthy. They're not to be appointed because they're famous or highly connected or even gifted speakers. And just because men may desire to be an elder, that doesn't mean they qualify to be one. And let me also say this too, that there are men who are qualified to be an elder but every qualified man is not supposed to be an elder in the church. So although we're bringing up three men, there are many men who can be an elder. But here's the deal. 1 Timothy 3 says if you desire this office, you got to want to do it. You got a sense, a sense of calling. 
Yeah, you may qualify as far as your lifestyle, but is there this urge in you, this calling, this desire to do it? And then does that desire match up with your lifestyle? And so that's why there has to be a process that we go through to test the spirits because you have to have the character to support the calling. Being blameless is the foremost quality of being an elder, a bishop, or a pastor. In other words, having integrity. All other qualities flow out of being blameless. An elder is to be blameless in his marriage, in his parenting, if he has children, if he's married, in his attitude, in his practices, in his doctrine, and in how he ministers to people. Elders are to live lives that are beyond public scandal. Because when there is scandal, again, that kind of disruption and distraction not only pulls the minister down, but temporarily pulls down the name of Jesus. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, don't lay hands on anybody quickly. You got to watch people for a while because the sins of some people are obvious, but the sins of other people just trail behind. They're going to get there. Just wait. Just wait. Don't lay hands on people suddenly because sometimes when you have a leader who takes a fall, it can not only be catastrophic for the church and the community, but some churches don't re recover after there's some kind of fall or moral indiscretion. And so it doesn't mean that these leaders are sinless. It just means that when they do sin, they're able to repent of the sin and if necessary, make public amends for the sins that they've committed. Blameless, integrity. Oh, man. And so if someone is calling out liars, my elders should not be mentioned in the conversation. If someone's calling out thieves, I shouldn't hear Elder Clifton or Gary's name in there. If somebody's calling out cheaters or gossips or abusers or adulterers, you shouldn't hear my name or any of the other brothers' names. If somebody's saying there's some heretics over there at Strong Tower, none of the elders should be named among the heretics. And even if someone does call out your name, the charges will prove not to stick. <laughs> you didn't hear me. And even if somebody does call you out for something, which is why the Bible says if you do have an accusation against an elder, you just can't run out one at a time. No, you got to get two or three together and then bring your charge because we got to respect the office of this position even if you don't like the person. So we got to do this thing the right way so you don't bring confusion in God's house. You got to respect this position. And so if a couple of y'all are saying, pastor so-and-so, elder so-and-so is an alcoholic, then you've got to bring the charge the right way in the house of God. So Paul doesn't give specific directions on how to find these leaders or how to appoint these leaders. So therefore, we have great flexibility in 2017. And the flexibility is given to each church when it comes to establishing its own working government. The New Testament, listen to this, stresses the function of the church over the form the church should take. Function over form. Because at the end of the day, we can be all pretty, set up, looking good, but if we're not functioning as the church, which is to be salt and light, to be people who unlock the gates of hell and set captives free, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, if we're not functioning right, what good is the form? I know guys, when I played football, boy, they looked good in their uniform. They knew how to put the wristbands on. They had a little towel hanging off of the rear end, and they had to stick them under the eyes and all this kind of stuff, but they never got on the field and did anything. Oh, well. Now, when I was one of those guys that rode the bench, oh, well. 
apartment before I was the man. When I rode the bench, I had enough sense to at least get my uniform dirty during warm-ups. Because when the girls were sitting in the bleachers, you know, and they looking out at the field, they weren't going to look at my uniform all crisp and white. They were going to see some dirt on my uniform, even if I was doing it during calisthenics. But he'll make you a new creation and deliver you of your pride and your arrogance. Oh, my God. He'll make you clean inside. Jonathan, why you sing that song so well? As we keep on moving, Paul says you got to appoint them. That means put them in position to lead. You got to authorize them. You got to empower them. And as the old King James says, you ordain them. To ordain means to place or set down or to cause to stand. So we're going to place these men or cause them to sit down in a particular place. And it's the Lord who's going to make them be able to stand. He's going to authorize them. We're only laying hands on men that God has already laid his hands on. The authority doesn't come from us. The authority comes from God. But what we're doing is we're transferring authority to these men so that when you see them now, you know that they are elders in the church. And they have the authority from God to lead in this body, but also with that comes the responsibility because not many of you should presume to be teachers for you are under stricter judgment, James 3.1. So they've counted the costs. Ordination always involves the laying on of hands in a public setting. This transference of approval and the dispensing of spiritual authority serves notice to the church as well as to the kingdom of darkness that God has set these few good men apart for his own use in the gospel ministry. For just as Moses ordained Joshua, and as Elijah ordained Elisha, and as Samuel ordained David, and as Jesus ordained the 12 disciples, and as Paul ordained Timothy and even Titus, so today we ordain Joseph Ozine, Bob Van Fletteren, and Jerry Lewis to the work God has called them to as elders of Strong Tower Bible Church. These three men have participated in the elder process for many, many, many months. During this time, they have served the church in various capacities. They have attended elders' meetings in non-voting capacities. They have attended an elders' retreat. They have completed a reading assignment. They have submitted their answers and beliefs to a thorough questionnaire and they yesterday submitted themselves to a public examination of their belief, of their lifestyle, and even of situational ethics. These three men are the men that God has called for such a time as this, a few good men. And at this time, I'm going to ask those few good men to join me here on the platform as we close out the service. going to bring some chairs for you. And if I could have these men, let's, let's get the men seated first. And let me get the oil from the platform. Now, the minute they stepped up into these roles, they moved up the hit list of the enemy. 
One more time. When they stepped forward into these roles, they moved up the hit list of the enemy. Brothers, you may be seated. I'm going to ask your wives to come and stand behind you. Now I'll call for my elder brothers to come and join me on the platform. Elder Tyler Rhyme Chisel is out of town and he sends his regards, he and his wife, Teresa. He's here with us in spirit. This oil is symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I anoint you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to go and make disciples. Jerry Lewis, I anoint you in the precious name of your Savior, Jesus Christ, to make a difference in and through this church. Dr. Joseph Ozine, I anoint you in the precious name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the healer who's given you the gift of healing to help people in this church and in the world. Strong Tower, would you stand to your feet at this time and stretch your hands this way. Father God, we said there would be a shift in the atmosphere because of what is going on here in the natural realm. Jesus, you taught us that before you even started your earthly ministry, you chose your leaders. And you discipled them and you empowered them and you equipped them to carry on the work. And Lord, we are here today because those men taught a few good men who taught a few more good men who taught a few more good men who ordained a few good men and, and that's why we're here today. And Lord, it's our desire to keep the kingdom going, to make disciples who will make a difference. We don't want the ball of grace and the gospel that's been passed to us to stop with us. We don't want to fumble the ball. We want to carry the ball by the strength that you give us. We want to run the race that you've given us as individuals and that you've given this church amongst the millions of churches in the world. We want to play our part. And you've been so good to us to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And at just the right time, you raised up the men that we need to grow. Men that we need to fulfill the mission of making disciples and our vision of experiencing, explaining, and expanding your diverse kingdom. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that they have worked and they have worked hard and their gifts have made room for them. But Lord, above all, it's because of you. We do not want to get that twisted today. Jesus, you even taught us to pray that you would send out workers into the harvest field. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Thank you for these men that you've provided, that you've rained down from heaven for us. I thank you that they take this seriously. I thank you that they weighed the costs. I thank you for their wives, their helpmates. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. I pray that you would watch over them and keep them. 
that your blood and your angels would protect them. And that, Lord, we loose them and set them free to do great works in this place and out of this place. So now we ordain them and commission them by the authority that God has given his church as you have given us the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. We loose a blessing on these men and we ordain them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Strong Tower Bible Church, friends and family can say, Amen. Can you praise God for what he has done? Hey! time to celebrate. So I'm going to ask the brothers to step off the stage with your wives, please. Step on out and go on down the hall where you can meet them, greet them, bless them, hug them. We have a reception. We have cake and punch. We have gifts for them. So y'all go on down. Uh, somebody get cool in the game because uh, it's time to celebrate. Brother Scott Ralston. Another new creation in Jesus Christ who knows about the power of God, how he can change you, heal your body. You can close us out, my brothers.